Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm speaking today with my friend and longtime colleague, Rob Hopkins, in Totnes in the UK. And um, we're going to be digging into his recent work around the importance of reaccessing and using our imaginations more effectively as we work towards regenerating pretty much our lives, but uh, maybe particularly our culture. Um, Rob is the founder of the transition movement itself. And um, his blog site now, his website is robhopkins.net. And I encourage you to go there now and keep going back. Um, Rob Hopkins is spelled R-O-B-H-O-P-K-I-N-S.net. So Rob, good morning. Good morning to you, Eric. Hi. How are you today? It's, I'm very good, thank you. It's the first, the first proper day of autumn, so my mind is turning to uh, going up to Dartmoor looking for mushrooms next weekend. Ah, beautiful. The edible variety, not the psychedelic variety. Just. Right, right. Um, Rob, you've been on a parallel journey to the, the one I've been on for the last many, many years in, in terms of um, what is now being called regenerative. We used to call it sustainable. I like to think it's evolved further since then. Um, but I actually don't have a sense of how this, this journey all began for you. Um, and I think that's important because there's a lot of people who are listening who maybe have, maybe have a sense that this is something that, it, that is important to them or could be important to them, but maybe haven't kind of put their foot onto some pathway in a direction that might lead them to more regenerative uh, well, I guess I guess it depends how far back you want to take it, really. Um, you know, whether it was through punk when I was fourteen, through uh, um, Rhodes protests when I was nineteen, twenty, whether it was through um, uh, being living in a Tibetan Buddhist monastery for three years when I was twenty-one, whether it was through uh, permaculture, discovering permaculture. I guess really, probably permaculture is the main uh, thing. When I was about 23, somebody gave me a copy of Bill Mollison's designer's manual and said, I think 
you might enjoy this. That's quite a gift. That was a big book. <laughs> That's quite an expensive book. Hey, Rob, I think you might quite enjoy this book, you know. And, uh, and just the first chapter that was about this, just that it brought in that notion of earth repair, you know, and I was very, I get the time, I guess, very immersed in sort of uh, kind of anarchist sort of politics, I guess. And, but, but very like, what are we against? Here's the big list of all the things we're against. We don't like this, we don't like that. We're gonna fight this and campaign against that. And, uh, and then here is this book saying, this is a manual of earth repair. It just sort of blew my mind rather. Uh, and I heard Bill Mollison speak around that time. I went and did my permaculture design course, which completely rewired my brain, I think, in terms of a way of looking at the things in front of you through kind of possibilities glasses looking at what could be rather than what is and um and then that really uh and, and then i did a degree that was one of the first kind of sustainability degrees in the uk and then moved to ireland much like yourself and uh, then really sort of set about for 10 or 11 years um just trying it all out really so planting food forests and building cob houses and straw bale houses and cordwood buildings and uh, growing food and uh, treating water, generating energy, set up the first full-time two-year permaculture course at Kinsale Further Education College. And then that was what kind of, then when I returned back to England with this very sort of eclectic bag of experience from trying and failing and just trying things out, that was really the where the seeds of the transition movement were kind of contained, I suppose. Because um, because we met we met when you were coming up to Dublin fairly often. I don't think I ever made it down to the Hollies where you were doing a lot of this work in, in County Cork. Yeah. Um, and and at that point, I mean, this was before you had published your master's degree as the Transition Town Handbook. Um, but I think you were kind of presenting elements that would end up in there and maybe even testing the waters a bit with some of these presentations. Mm. Um, and I recall at one point, uh, there was a fairly, fairly nasty situation down there at the Hollies that some buildings were burnt or um, it, it is this kind of sense that there was local misunderstanding and fear and opposition to what these hippies were doing down in there. Um, did that impact kind of the direction this all took in terms of its emphasis on building understanding further and, and, and building stronger community? Or was that always an element? Um, yeah, so the story for the listeners there was we, we did the first uh, kind of eco-village project in Ireland to get planning permission uh, down in West Cork. And we built the first two uh, new cob buildings built in Ireland for over 100 years. And, you know, in spite of, you know, we, we were trying to do something at the time that even in a really progressive place would have been considered pretty radical, but we were trying to do it in possibly one of the most conservative rural corners uh, of Ireland. And um, the house that we had been building that was going to be our family home that was about six months off being finished hundreds of volunteers had come and helped build it. It was beautiful, hand sculpted clay plasters, lath and plaster, hemp plaster, all this beautiful roof that looked like an upside down boat. It was gorgeous. Someone came and set it on fire in the middle of the night one, one October evening. 
and um, we never found out who it was or what it was, what, what it was all about. But the project after that continued to evolve. We decided to leave and come back to the UK. It was quite, it was very traumatic. Uh, you know, that was like we were like six months off the culmination of a ten-year life plan, and then the whole thing was literally sort of thrown up in the air. So, um, so we ended up coming back. But the Holly still exists, and and there's lots of new buildings been built there and and uh they run lots of courses on cob building earth building it's if anyone's interested in earth construction it's the most amazing place to visit and see what they've done with it but um it did feel like um even though i wouldn't i would never have considered myself to be a hippie or whatever the, whatever that even means the nice thing about coming back to the uk particularly to come to totnes which is seen as a fairly uh progressive uh town was that for the first time we were the really straight people <laughs> normal. because I wasn't called rainbow or oak or something all of a sudden I was like really normal and actually I really quite enjoyed that this sort of mad hippie freak person uh, who people sort of distrusted even though we were doing something that now in Ireland actually is becoming government policy and uh, uh, is pretty much sort of generally accepted as common sense you know I think we, it was kind of the pioneers curse you know you're always about 10 or 15 years ahead of everybody and you put your head up above the parapet and in Ireland you get you know you get a can of petrol flung at you and in uh, uh, in other places you get different things you know it's just what happens when you're a pioneer I guess in some ways. Yeah that's certainly a known element for any listeners who might not understand this terminology um, well there's a load available through a lot of the different permaculture websites out there but uh, speaking of the building material called cob um, this is a mix of uh, fiber which could be hemp or straw or um, you know, other, other fibrous uh, plant-based materials and local clay type mud um, and yeah yeah cob is a beautiful it's like building a house out of plasticine uh, you know it's very sculptural so it's much easier to build a room with no corners than a room with corners so you tend to get these much more organically sculpted kind of houses it's wonderful and of course, there's a lot of stuff around living in a room like that um, over the years of uh, a more relaxing space, you know, among other things, a more creative space, which kind of leads us into this whole conversation around getting back to our imaginations and the importance of that. I, I see that as being somewhat entwined with uh, the, the need for, but also the joy of storytelling and narrative. Um, but also a kind of a tool and a practice in itself. Mm. So maybe you could you could lead us into in there a bit. Yeah, well, um, one of the things when we started the transition movement that really fascinated me was the contraction and convergence model, which showed how the affluent global north needed to cut its emissions by about 80% down to a level that was sustainable and that the two-thirds world would come up a little bit to meet them at that point and that was the sustainable place you know and it what it struck me at the time was that what we what we were lacking was the stories about how that place at the end of the process could be a far nicer place than where we are now all the talk about moving towards a low carbon economy was like uh sort of a long miserable trudge down a hill in the rain towards you know like leaving a really great party with all your friends uh, for a lonely walk home to a cold bedsit you know 
and actually I thought well no one's going to go for that you know we th th there was nobody saying actually do you know what we get if we get this right and we get to the end of this journey it would just be fabulous and the conversation would be better and the food would, would be better we'd have better carnivals our cities would be beautiful the air would be clean we'd have more time together we'd be able to you know that actually there was nobody really telling that story and so it felt initially in with, with transition it felt like unless we're able to really tell a compelling narrative about how wonderful that's going to be and create opportunities for people to get a taste of that. So it's not just something academic, it's something they can see and taste and experience in their everyday life, then it's just never going to happen. And any amount of policy changes is not really going to make any difference. So uh, a couple of years ago, I read a paper by uh, a researcher called Kyung Hee Kim, uh, who wrote a paper called The Creativity Crisis which was published in 2010, I think, and which uh, appeared on the front page of Newsweek in 2011 with, with his headline, The Creativity Crisis. And what she did was she gathered together all of the results of something called the Torrance Test for Creative Thinking, which is the kind of the gold standard creativity test that's done around the world. So she gathered all the data for the, for the US going back to the 1960s. And then she did clever stuff to it and then her but her, her, her finding what well, her conclusion was that imagination and IQ rose together till 1990 and then at some point between 1990 and 1998 they parted company and imagination went into what she calls a steady and persistent decline and when it was published particularly when it got into Newsweek and stuff there were it led to a whole big period of soul searching in America about our education system and you know are we creating are we producing young people who are creative and imaginative uh, there's all this testing that's come into education and stuff and um, uh, and I thought how fascinating because everyone was talking about well what does this mean for economic growth what does this mean for Pixar what does this mean for Apple you know I never heard anybody say what does this mean for all the people who are trying to do work around climate change all the movements around social justice all of these movements I didn't hear anybody say well what does this mean for us actually because fundamentally what we're trying to do is to get people to imagine something different than what's in front of us. Because business as usual is a suicide pact and we need to be able to imagine something else. And we seem to be stuck. One of the genius things about neoliberal economics is how it's created this sense that, there, that, that, that there's nothing else. We are the only option. Uh, otherwise it was communism that failed. There's nothing else. <clears throat> so th there's, so what she said in her paper was she said we're experiencing a failure of imagination because of the rise of testing in schools because of uh, because children don't do enough kind of unstructured play anymore and because people don't get into out into the wild out, out out into nature so much so it set me off thinking well is that is that what we're seeing are there other things that we can use to identify why we might be how we might be seeing a failure of the imagination and what else might be driving it so for me when i look around and the, the research i've been doing over the last year and a half it feels like the the decline of play in our in our culture is is a really key part of it particularly for children this expectation that children start building their cv from the age of four has just crushed that idea of no actually do you know what it's fine just to sit and gaze out the window and play with a load of bricks and draw all day. That's absolutely brilliant. You know, playing with other people and also the decline of play in adults. 
uh, when this sort of the cult of busyness that we all seem to be in. I think a lot of the research around uh, the impact of social media, smartphones, uh, particularly smartphones on our on our creativity is really, really troubling. The, the, uh, when we lose the space to daydream in our lives, there's all sorts of research that shows we become much, much less creative as well. Um, I think there's, there's also a woman who I interviewed called Sherry, uh, no, called Lisa Van Susteren, who talks about pre-traumatic stress disorder, which I thought was fascinating. That when you live in a world where you can see the diversity dwindling, and you know, in my lifetime, we've lost half of the creatures that we share this planet with. So that's sort of going on in the background. <clears throat> and um, one of the guys that I spoke to, uh, who was uh, Drew Dellinger, the poet, he said, uh, if we lived on the moon, our imagination would be as barren as the moon. So if we live in a world where the diversity, the bird song, the wildlife around us is, is, is decreasing, then I think our imagination goes with it too. Um, what's happening to our education system, that idea that here is a problem, there's one answer to it. And if you get it right, that's great. And if you don't, you know, we have an education system where in the UK, 20% of girls around 14 are self-harming because of the anxiety, this whole crisis uh, of anxiety. We have what's called an epidemic of loneliness now here in this country. And fundamentally, the imagination sparks at its best when you've got other people that you're sparking ideas with. You know, all the things we talked about at the beginning, transition, the stuff that cultivate, you know, people might look at the transition movement and say, oh, Rob Hopkins started the transition movement. The transition movement grew out of a whole complex web of discussions and uh, connections and events and, and dialogues that were happening around that time. So, so for me, the question is, if we're seeing a, a crisis of the imagination, and it's really interesting the last year or two to see more and more people starting to use this term, we're seeing a failure of the imagination. Um, <clears throat> well, then what do we do about it? And what does a uh, an intentional collective rebuilding of the imagination look like and that's that's kind of where i've started off really uh, on this whole on this whole journey that's uh, a long and detailed um <laughs> start but it kind of brings us up to the moment and that's pretty exciting um i'm, I'm really intrigued by things such as you mentioned the pre-traumatic stress disorder as, mm. a, as an example because it, it's one of the things i've been observing because I too tend to take a um, systemic and holistic perspective on, on what's happening. Um, and I see this in, in some ways, I mean, there's always different ways that, that we try to describe things because the human mind is only capable, I think, of attempting to explain to a certain degree of complexity after which we just either have to accept or marvel or deny um, you know, but we, one way or another, we're not going further with that at, at you know, at a given moment. Um, so, so one of the ways I've, I've more recently been looking at, at sort of the, the angst of our era is it's a series of disconnections. I mean, you talk about, for instance, teen suicides. Um, I mean, one of the more common things that it, obviously that in itself is devastating and very complex, and I don't want to minimize that. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the expressions coming out of many people as they move into adolescence, whether it pushes them to a self-destructive or, um, or not, you know, level of despair, 
is this expression that, well, none of it means anything. It's meaningless. It's pointless. So this is this disconnection that a person has um, really increasingly from their own life and their own hope. And hope, you know, to be effective, hope is, is, is got to be based on some sort of evidence, right? Like we need that. We, we need to give ourselves reasons to hope. You know, a lot of the expressions we use are, are actually based in, in real experience, you know, and you hear that a lot, reasons for hope. It's not just blind faith. It's, it's I mean, you touched on that a little bit earlier when you, when you were talking about the transition itself and, and, and permaculture and, and the, the way in which we can see how things could be different and much better. And the same way in that, uh, like, sustainability um, had to fight against an image of basically sitting in a cold bath in the dark and gnawing on a, you know, uh, you know, a, a crust of, of whole grain bread. <laughs> you know, oh, those were the days. You know, before getting out and putting your hair shirt back on. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think that, um, you know, this crisis of disconnection is, is part of what, what fuels the, the despair what fuels this sort of sense of like, well, it's pointless, it's meaningless, because I no longer feel connected to you. I no longer even feel connected to myself. If I, if I had some encouragement and maybe some assistance, I could get out into nature with no agenda and no iPhone and experience that kind of connection. Um, to the natural world, you know, to the to the place that ultimately sustains me and 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 is a part of my my identity or could become so. Mm-hmm. So we so we've got these kind of this kind of stacked um, disconnectivity, and in, for me, the whole experience of the imagination also um, it opens the door to or provides a listening function for my own intuitive understanding of what's important. And that's something which is, which is far deeper and far broader than anything that someone may have tried to teach me in school, for instance, mm-hmm. or even something my, my mates may be pushing on me because they want me to agree with them. That intuition, you know, the intuitive process of, of knowledge uh, collection and um, assessment has been quantified you know that and it's it it's not just a a vague feeling or you know some level of superstition and that sort of thing you know people who are looking at even as dry a field as corporate leadership are now recognizing what uh, researchers have uh, have been able to demonstrate that the intuitive process is separate from the rational process and that it actually uh, represents somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of the information which flows through and to and through us at any given time is actually translated through that intuitive process and here we live in a society which is kind of based on the rational which is fine but it's it's sidelined the intuitive and I believe that the way for us to re-engage with that it has to be through the imagination mm. yeah yeah I mean there's a thing <clears throat> I mean sorry <clears throat> I think, um, you know, you mentioned at the beginning there about, about young people and feeling things are meaningless and stuff. I mean, that, that is the problem, it seems to me, is that we kind of pathologize that and say there's something wrong with them. I mean, actually, that is the completely natural reaction to the world that we live in, because the world we live in is completely mad. 
uh, and yeah, it's, it's accurate. It's an accurate yeah, it's perception. A it's a completely healthy response to a to an insane uh, system. <clears throat> so one of the things I always like to do when I do talks at the beginning is I say, okay, if we're going to start, I'm going to get you to do something for me. I'm going to get you into pairs with somebody else, ideally someone you didn't know before. I'm going to show you a picture of an object and you've got one and a half minutes to think of as many different uses for that object as possible. I show them like a paper cup or a, <coughs> a, a, a um, paper clip or something. I say, right, go. And I say, there's no right answers. There's, uh, uh, don't have to be thinking, is this an economically viable solution? Just go and just keep it, don't write them down, but just keep a record of how many you've got, how many you get at the end. And then for a minute and a half, the room fills up with laughter and connection and uh, that sort of sparky kind of imaginative thinking, you know. And at the end I say, you know, what we've done is we've kind of invoked the imagination into this space. And actually this feeling that, you're, that I see when I look around and you're all laughing and connecting and coming up with ideas, that's what our activism should feel like. That's what the next 20, 30 years should feel like. <clears throat> but all too often we just, imagination is seen as, uh, you know, there's a book, thing in the book I'm writing where I talk about the difference between innovation and imagination. So we live in a society that loves innovation. Everything is innova innovation. Every government does an innovation strategy. They never do an imagination strategy. But innovation is something you do when your fundamental model works. You know, you don't really, like pizza is great. You don't really need to kind of reimagine pizza because pizza is fundamentally a really great concept. You can kind of innovate with pizza and new toppings and stuff, but fundamentally it's, it works. Pizza works. Whereas actually our, our economy doesn't work because it's good. It's a suicide pact and we have to, uh, we have to reimagine it. So there was a guy uh, I read who in New York who looked at all of the job adverts that were on monster.com in New York that particular day. And 960 looked for innovative as a quality in the people they were looking for. And only seven were looking for imaginative uh, as a quality in the people. But the thing, that, <clears throat> the thing that I've started thinking that maybe comes back to a little bit of what you were saying there was um, my, my concern is that, that what we find, our, we find ourselves in this position which is very similar to being like <clears throat> the frog in the boiling pan of water in terms of climate change in that um, there's a there's a part of our brain called the hippocampus and the hippocampus is the part of our brain which is really kind of the where our memory uh, fires from and also where our imagination fires from and it's it's the part of our brain which is how that enables us to imagine the future it's very uh, sort of future focused and um, Although when we're being imaginative, all these different networks fire, but the hippocampus is always at the heart of it. The thing about the hippocampus is it's uniquely vulnerable to cortisol. <clears throat> so when we're um, stressed or anxious or fearful, the hippocampus visibly shrinks. So children who've had very traumatic childhoods, their hippocampus can be 18, 20% smaller than someone who didn't. People with post-traumatic stress disorder the hippocampus is visibly smaller. And when your hippocampus shrinks, you lose that ability to imagine the future and you often lose the ability to, uh, to remember stuff as well. And my concern is that actually the further we get into climate change, the more obvious it becomes, the more anxious we become, whether we're conscious or not about the level of anxiety that it creates in us and in the culture around us, that we become less able to imagine a way out of it. And we've seen recently as well the science coming out about how living in air, with air pollution is reducing our ability to think imaginatively as well. That as, as the world warms and there's more and more CO2 in the air, the, the, the crops 
that we rely on for our nutrition pack on carbohydrates and take up less minerals. And iron and zinc, when uh, uh, in, in the first thousand days of life, iron and zinc are fundamental to the health of the health development of a healthy hippocampus. And we see that as dropping by about 8% in, in the food that we have. So it feels like it's another reason why we really need to focus on and value the imagination is because otherwise we run the risk that the further we get into this particular crisis, the harder it becomes to imagine a way out of it. And that's, that, that, that's the bit that keeps me awake at night is thinking, well, actually, we have to put the imagination fundamentally back in the middle of this discussion, because if we lose it, then we lose the key to how we get out of it. So is it, it's a downward spiral if we do not. Yeah, it's, and, and it's a kind of a self-propelling spiral, because what you find in people who... Um, uh, who uh, people who are very anxious and people who experience trauma and when the hippocampus sh shrinks then people become less able to imagine positive futures so they seek out the information and the evidence that that, that bolsters their more negative worldview which then feeds their negative worldview so then increasingly uh, uh, it becomes a self-fulfilling kind of downward spiral so the question for me has always been well how do we reverse the direction of that spiral uh, and transition for me is one part of that because one of the ways that you reverse the spiral is by getting people together with other people, uh, creating what I call what if spaces where people can come together and say, yeah, we could do it like that or we could do it like this. Uh, you know, and, and there's some really great examples maybe we can come on to about what a really good what if space looks like and what a really good what if question looks like. Yeah, I actually, actually, I was going to bring up something quite similar to that, just slightly differently phrased. Um, I've, I've done quite a bit of work with Art of Hosting and um, they have, you know, periodic, not, not frequent enough periodic conversations with uh, the author or the, the originator of that whole methodology, Mary Alice Arthur. Um, but one of the things I love about the, the art of hosting process is there's, there's, um, there's a concept of, of asking good questions, you know, to, to get at something. And then, and it's sometimes depicted as sort of a continuum or a spectrum, you know, from the kind of basic conversation shutdown of asking a yes, no question, right? You ask someone who's like, is it you? And it's like, well, you don't go into a, a kind of nuanced answer with that normally. It's just like, yes or no. Um, um, so, so that question is, is, is at, at the other end of the spectrum is like, what might be possible if, you know, a nice, really open-ended imagination stirring question. And it sounds like the what if spaces that you're describing are, you know, quite similar in terms of their, their impact. Yeah, one of my favorite examples, maybe there's two examples of that. One is in Liège in Belgium. I went to visit Transition Liège, uh, Liège en Transition, and they've been going for a couple of years. This was four years ago. And uh, they'd come up with this, well, their what-if question was, what if in a generation's time, the majority of the food grown in Liège came from the land around Liège, the land closest to Liège? And so they, they called this project Centure Alimentaire, which means food belt. Uh, to make a belt of food production around the city. And I went there, they had an initial event, they invited everybody who cared about food in Liège, so farmers, chefs, academics, whatever. And then I went back about six months ago, <clears throat> after four years, and in that time, they had created 14 new cooperatives. So it was a farm, two vineyards, a brewery, a delivery business, two shops in the centre of Liège, a mushroom growing business. And... Um, they had raised 5 million euros from, from local people to fund that. 
And the beauty of it as a question is that it, is it creates a space that people can step into and go, oh, what can I contribute to this? And how can we, how can we get involved and make this happen? I met the mayor of the city whose name was Willie de Mayer, which was fantastic. He's like, you the man? No, you the mayor. And it was really lovely. And he was like, this is brilliant. This is, this is the story of our city now. This is, the, this is our story. And all the land we own as a municipality around the city, we're making available to, to, to the Centre of Alimentaire to, to, to do stuff. The other one that comes to mind is the, uh, and when I, when I asked Christian, who, Jeanet, who drives that project, I said, how did, how did you do this? How did you get people to invest 5 million euros to enable all this to happen? He said, uh, we had a good story. We had a, we had a really strong narrative and a narrative that created lots of space for people to step into. The other one is a thing that's happening in London, which is called uh, National Park City. London, the National Park. I've seen this, yeah. Yeah, which is this idea of uh, this guy, uh, Daniel Raven Ellison, who, who went with his son around the UK. He's a geographer and he went to visit all the national parks around the UK. And then he got back to London and looked at a map of London and found that 47.5% of London is, um, uh, green space and two percent of it is blue space lakes ponds streams and then he said well so he needs another half a percent and then the majority of it is going to be green space and, th and that means that ev if every person in london made one square meter green then we've done it we've tipped it so so there's a beautiful again a what if question there where where that opens up so schools can go hmm yeah how could we and businesses and, and everybody can be saying, yeah, what's our role in it? You know, it's not a kind of prescriptive, you need to do this. It's not like Friends of the Earth, here's your campaign for the month. You know, it's really that sort of invitation of step in, here's a, here's a space, which is kind of what we did in transition of saying, here's some principles, here's, here's some tools. We don't know if they'll work, but take them, run with them and share your stories. Uh, and so, yeah, I love, I love looking out for those, for those really good kind of what if questions. We're going to take a break now. So stay tuned, we'll be right back. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind & Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind & Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind & Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind & Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Well, step back a moment to a couple of other comments and see if we can connect those up to the current dominant zeitgeist we'll put it that way um so there's this this issue around stress stress and anxiety reducing our ability to imagine and there's the idea of, of creating a, a what if context that helps drive things in the in a repair in a direction of repair and regeneration and keeping in mind the overall context is regeneration mm. on social culture on the, and and earth level um and personal um so, so activities that enable uh, critical processes such as our ability to imagine, and I would posit with that our ability to have evidence-based hope, you know, and with that our ability to sort of energize ourselves to actually make the kinds of transitions necessary to secure a much better, brighter, you know, fun future for ourselves. Um, you know, those, those all relate as far, as far as I see things. Now, given that 
most of our listenership are probably English speakers. Um, and so that puts it North America, UK, Ireland, um, Australia, mm -hmm. and, and New Zealand, but we're gonna take New Zealand out for the moment of this formula, because what I wanna speak about is, uh, you know, the, the intensity of the, of the political uh, fear machine, which is particularly active in, in the United States and, and the UK right now. Mm. Um, and this, this idea that, that you know, any of us can kind of open up that what if space and how important that would be to movements such as the resistance movements where um, I've been trying to coach people that you know, it's not enough to just stand there and say, no, 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 we don't want this. It's absolutely essential. And this comes from you know, my, own, my own history, but also observing many others over many decades, that you know, movements for change are successful to the extent that they can pose a viable and, and engaging alternative. Right? Movements for change that just try to shut things down have a much, much harder time progressing than those which say, instead of this, we choose that. Mm. Right? And so that ability to create these what-if spaces for social conversation, locally, always locally, um, eventually you know, they can aggregate to, a, to a, a more national visibility as they gain support. But this kind of process really works best when you can be in the room to, together and ping stuff around and you know, spark off one another and, and have this very, very positive process such as what happened um, with the, uh, the food belt that you just described. Mm. You know, there's obviously a, a really successful process is like what would be possible if we just decided this was important. So I kind of want to touch on that um, because I think there's, you know, there's, there's a sense that something like imagination and, um, and creativity is optional. Yeah, one of the people I interviewed uh, the other day whose name I can't remember, uh, but I can find it, who, who works in Mexico City. So what, a question I've asked everybody that I've interviewed during this book has been, if you had been elected the president or prime minister of your country and you'd run on a platform of make, say, make America imaginative again, make Britain imaginative, you can make Spain imaginative again. If you, if you recognized that there was a, 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 a troubling imagination deficit in our culture, in our public life, that people, uh, that there's very little room for it in schools, there's very little room for it in universities, there's very little room for it in people's working lives now because we're all so busy going round and round and round. There's very little room for it in our personal lives <clears throat> and any space that we might have kept for it in our personal lives we now fill with our smartphones and with social media. <clears throat> if we recognise that, that that is a problem then what would it look like if you were elected on a platform of uh, putting the imagination back at the centre of public life. And everybody who I've asked a question, they first, they first say, what a great question. And then they think about it for a while. And then they come back with a whole range of things to do with education, to do with uh, uh, the arts. You know, when we've seen the scale of cuts, it feels to me like actually one of the guys I interviewed, a guy called Henry Giroux, who's a political uh, educator guy in the US, he talks about the Trump disimagination machine which I thought was a lovely term. You know, he says, actually, what we're seeing is the politics of disimagination at the moment. 
where we drive politics, we, we drive imagination out of, uh, out of the public's uh, space. Um, so this woman who I spoke to in Mexico City, I spoke to her because I had this question about what would it look like if, you had, if we had a ministry of imagination? If we elected governments who said, we're going to put this alongside everything else, we're going to have health, education, imagination as fundamental things. And, and in Mexico City, they have, they call it the laboratory for the city, but it is kind of fundamentally a ministry of imagination. And it's a team that is made up half of artists and designers and the other half of the kind of people you'd imagine working in government. Uh, and she said that, she said imagination is not a luxury. <clears throat> imagination is something that needs to be fundamental and run through uh, everything that we do. One of the things that I've really observed here in Totnes through the transition process is that when you, when you uh, focus not on the sort of divisive politics and who's right and who's wrong and whether you believe all the right things in before you can get involved, but when you have a general process which is around we want to make this place more resilient, more diverse, more interesting, lower carbon, but also particularly more connected. <clears throat> all sorts of people get involved from all different kind of political backgrounds. So I'm on the, the steering group of a couple of different projects. There are people on those steering groups from a whole range of different political perspectives. Some of them are motivated by climate change, some of them aren't. They all bring different skills, but we, we all work together towards something. And that feels like that feels so important at a time that's becoming more and more polarized and everybody heading off in different directions. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really taken with that question of what would it look like if, if you were elected on a make your country imaginative again platform, what would you do in your first hundred days in office? <clears throat> it's a great question. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would hope that that kind of, um, a ministry for imagination, you know, one of its uh, remits would be to take everybody in government through a reawakening and releasing into that space of imagination rather than having it kind of, you know, sectored off as like, well, that's just what these guys do, but I'm, you know, I'm busy sort of driving the economy into the ground. Um, or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, know. you, would, you would hope that it would be, yeah, it would have to be completely kind of cross cross-sectoral in that sense. Yeah, totally integrated into, into, into the system. Much the way, you know, training around things like um, racism or, or gender bias, uh, et cetera, you know, uh, need to be in a, in, a, in a curriculum in that it's cross-curriculum, you know. One of the guys, one of the guys that I interviewed is a guy called Martin Shaw, who's the most amazing mythologist, storyteller guy I lived down here. And I said, what would you do in your first 200 days? He said, I'd switch off the national grid for three weeks. I said, you do realize, Martin, that's every government's complete worst nightmare. Because <laughs> if the grid goes down for more than four hours, the belief is everyone will just start eating each other, you know. And, uh, and he said, uh, but they'd be able to see the stars. <laughs> so I don't think I'd have him in my cabinet, but I thought I was a nice sentiment anyway. <laughs> no, but it is really interesting, isn't it? In, 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 in some sense, that epitomizes the fear installed you know, in the population is like, well, you know, if, if we don't do this, it could result in something like the national grid going down. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And how many people step forward and just say, and? <laughs> Maybe we could see the stars and tell each other stories. I mean, I lived for years in Vermont, you know, and every any time we had a thunderstorm, our local grid had a possibility of going down and everyone was really creative and imaginative and prepared. 
<laughs> the candles and stuff in the cupboard. Candles and, and like getting buckets of water from the river to flush the toilet and um, sitting with your friends. Wow. Imagine. <laughs> just imagine that. You'd have to just go and hang out with your friends more. It's radical stuff. Television wasn't working, you know. <laughs> it's because it, 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 it seems to me, one of, one of the things that really intrigued me when I started looking, toying around with this, when I saw this term failure of imagination coming up again, whether it was George Monbiot or Naomi Klein or whoever started talking about failure of imagination. If you look back through history, the inquiry of the Titanic blamed the Titanic disaster on a failure of the imagination. The Apollo 1 uh, fire inquiry blamed the failure of the imagination. The British partition of India and that, well, everything that followed that, that that was blamed on a failure of the imagination. 9-11 inquiry blamed on a failure of the imagination. Uh, the, uh, in, the, the British... The, the, Investigation into the financial crash of 2008 blamed on the failure of the imagination. So why do we keep having these failures of the imagination all the time? Uh, you know, it just seems like we kind of go round and round and round. And uh, so no, you're going to have to because because people are 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 trained to be skeptical, and and these are like large assertions. I I could easily see uh, from my experience how that how that could be, um, but. Just say a little bit more how these kind of massive historical events are related. Is, is that because the response was not imaginative or is it because they didn't imagine it being possible that it could happen? Yeah, it's because it's because they they failed to to imagine the different scenarios of what could unfold, I think. Uh, the well, particularly in the case of 9-11, because they had intelligence to say that kind of thing. They, the people have been talking about it for ages, but actually it was just not taken into account. And the, 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 the I suppose the financial crash of 2008, you know, it was like people were, people were just too busy making money out of it to think, well, maybe, you know, what if this, what if this didn't keep going like this? What if this collapsed, you know? Or in the case, I suppose, in the case of the financial collapse and the case of, of 9-11 um, and the information which had been put forth well in advance that if uh, measures weren't taken, this is among the possibilities of what could result. I, I think there's also a discounting of that imagination. You know, yeah. it's, oh, well, you're just imagining things, and which is always put forward as a pejorative. <laughs> Isn't it? Right. Yeah. But, but if climate change is anything, it is the greatest failure of imagination in the history of the world, surely. Future generations look back and go, really? You couldn't figure that out? Was it really that hard? I mean, all you had to do was stop burning so much of that stuff. You know, it's not like that complicated. You know, we, we seem to be paralyzed with this thing that it's completely unimaginable. For, for so many people, the like a low carbon future becomes, it was one of the reasons why I thought that film Tomorrow Demand, the French film was so powerful because it gave people this whole palette of kind of possibilities because our imagination is only as dynamic and vibrant as the kind of uh, the range of possibilities that we have to draw from. Uh, you know, it's like we're, we're, we, we can only paint as beautiful a painting depending on how many different colors we have in our paint box. And it's the same with the imagination. And when, when we live in a world where we just uh, go to work and watch the, what's on the television, we don't get that kind of palette of, of possibilities. And one of the things that was so powerful about it, I think, was that people had this afterwards felt like, oh, I can see now what we could do with energy and what we could do with food and how we could do economics differently. And like that project and like that project and like that project. And all of a sudden it, it sort of it kind of came alive for people. It came into being possible. 
the film was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Do you know, is, is that available in English or is just subtitled? There? The, uh, there is, so they, they never got a, a, like a mainstream cinema release for it in the UK. I think they did in the US. There is a, there is a US DVD. You can get the French DVD with English subtitles, but they created a whole different English version where they overdubbed a lot of the narration parts in English. And you can get a US format version of that, but it won't play on DVDs in the UK, uh, DVD players in the UK. Uh, so we don't have one. So Transition Network negotiated a distribution deal in the UK where we distributed it for community screenings. But I don't think there's going to be an official DVD release of it, which is a real shame. Okay, let's just take a second here. So Transition Network is actually a really good place to point people for yeah, so transition. So when uh, when we started the transition movement in Totnes originally was the only initiative in two thousand five. Very quickly, it started popping up in loads and loads of other different places, and so we formed Transition Network as an organisation to network and train and inspire and connect uh, the different organisations. So transitionnetwork.org, you can find on there uh, lots of resources, and you can also find. Um, there's a thing called Transition Near Me, where you can put in where you are and it'll tell you all the transition stuff happening around there. Uh, and there's blogs and articles and all sorts of interesting stuff. But that's that's a good place to start. We'll, we'll put a lot of these links below the, the podcast and the couple ships. Um, so since we're there, um, two questions, because we're running up on the end of our hour here. Um, one uh, imaginative question and one more immediately practical. Um, let's start with the immediately practical, just in case we have to ping back onto it. Um, for someone who is maybe feeling socially or politically isolated and, and listening to this, because again, uh, you know, the, the dark forces uh, at, at play in both the US and, and the UA, UK around Brexit lately have, have had this divisive and isolating effect for many, many people. So um, I'm, I'm not so concerned about people who, who are kind of actively organizing in their communities because I think they've already got a leg up on this. But if you're just an individual listening to this and, and you wanted to um, maybe start that journey into recapturing your own imagination. How about a few suggestions on how that might, I know this is a really general question, but, but let's give a general answer. Maybe it'll be helpful for some folks. So, so the, um, so things that the re that research shows are really healthy for the hippocampus are eating a more kind of Mediterranean sort of a diet. So less processed food, um, uh, exercise, uh, meditation is very good for, for expanding the hippocampus. Yoga has been shown to be very good for expanding the hippocampus. Uh, and also I think, um, having a period of giving yourself some time to, to honestly reflect what some people call a soul deep reflection about the relationship with the smartphone in your pocket and um, maybe trying to uh, take the notifications off it, turn it black and white, buy an alarm clock so you don't have it by the side of your bed every morning. There's a guy who I spoke to who's a brilliant uh, designer who said, 
I know that if I wake up in the morning and the first thing I look at is my smartphone, <clears throat> it's not going to be as creative a day uh, as, it, as it would otherwise have been. So to, to, to be able to, to kind of put those technologies into a place, like I, I, get, um, I have a thing where I got rid of my smartphone and replaced it with an old clunky uh, Mars bar phone. Uh, so basically it means that I, when I'm out and about, I'm out and about and I'm not checking my emails and my social media yeah. all the time. I come home and I have my time, which is my checking my email time. And then when I'm out and about, that's just what I'm doing. Like people can still ring me or text me if there's an emergency. So I don't need to have that fear, but actually it means that I, rather than you see all the time when people are out and something gets slightly boring, out come the phones and that time when you could daydream and think, you know, a lot of the ideas that are going into this book are ideas that I've come in that time when I've been just out without a smartphone in my pocket. Uh, so I would say those things really and, and connection because I love the thing that Brian Eno says about, you know, in our culture, we get so obsessed with the idea of genius, the solitary genius, you know, Van Gogh or, or uh, Andy Warhol or whatever, you know, these sort of seminal people. And he says, actually, it's completely the wrong way of looking at it. All those people were just the, the visible sort of uh, lazy uh, um, sort of label that was put onto a, to a whole scene. You know, it was a whole scene of people. Transition grew out of a whole scene of people. Uh, all of these things grow out of scenes. So he, used, he says, it's not about genius, it's about seniors. And so for me, there's, there, there's that thing of, just try and find other people who are interested and, and just make, make space for conversation, make space for connection and conversation to talk about the things that matter, even if it's just two or three of you. Uh, that's, that kind of thing is really important. You know, it strikes me as a set of uh, strategies and, and um, vocabulary sometimes is weak, you know. Uh, well, I want to say solutions, but I don't really mean that in the sense we normally mean it. Um, so solutions which are in the form maybe of personal strategies, um, which are not so dissimilar from the sorts of lifestyle changes a person might very quickly take up where they given a very negative ne uh, medical assessment, mm. you know, and there's this kind of, that kind of, kind of sense of, oh, I better make a lot of changes here really quick. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, it's the thing that really strikes me that actually just even over the last six months, you know, the, the, you know I, I, I remember the time before, before email, smartphones, you know, actually for my kids, it's unimaginable that there was life before smartphones uh, or life before, before the internet. Actually, it was all right. And, uh, you know, the, 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 if, if we look at the, at the internet as being a kind of a 20-year experiment, we're 20 years into this experiment and the data that's coming in halfway through that experiment is really, really troubling about the impact that it's having on our creativity, on our, on our attention spans in particular, uh, on our ability to connect with each other, on the rise of loneliness, on how it's driving uh, a crisis of mental health among young people. But again, it's another thing that's just like, well, that's just, that, that's, that's how it is. That's, that's inevitable. But I think we, it's really important to have a period of, to, to reflect on actually what is this thing that we brought into the world and what is it doing? You look at in China, the social credit rating stuff where the government can uh, hoover up all your data and give you a mark, which determines whether or not you're a good citizen or a bad citizen. And there's some, it's really very, very troubling and, and very damaging to the imagination, I think, in some ways. Okay, let's apply your imagination to 20 years from now. Yeah. 
doing a bit of backcasting that I know you're familiar with through all your process. Um, if you were to stand 20 years into the future and backcast, um, what might be important milestones in terms of retrieving our ability to imagine effectively and, and powerfully and, and what that could do for us? I think we would, uh, I think we would have maybe by the mid 20, the early 2020s, I think we would see a complete overhaul and reimagining of education and how schools work. We would recognize that the thing that the UK, the US and Ireland our, our main skill set and contribute contribution is is creativity and imagination and we've designed an education system that has perfected the the crushing of that of that imagination so i think we would be looking at an education system much more like that in finland where kids are allowed to play till they're seven and then even and then even then there's a lot of space left for play a lot of using your hands a lot of craft a lot of creativity stuff a lot of problem solving and <clears throat> alongside academic things but actually the fundamental aim is to produce really uh, imaginative problem solving confident unstressed uh, uh, delightful intelligent young people uh, and that i think the sh and and that schools become uh, a showcase and uh, a kind of like workshops i suppose so in school the kids are baking, the kids are building stuff, you know, it's, it's much more like that. This idea that we basically have to become like the Korean education system where everybody's get excelling at maths, when actually Korea is really good at that stuff, you know, actually we maybe, so, so, so for me, it feels like there's a fundamental change in that. I think there's a fundamental shift that needs to happen over the next few years as well around democracy and like the kind of stuff that's happening in Barcelona with the neighborhood assemblies and the feminization of politics and the whole shift that's happening in Barcelona is just, it's just so exciting politically and in other places as well. Uh, so, so for me, if I was to pick out two key bits, I think on that journey, it would be around education and it would be around the sort of a, a new democracy that would be underpinning it. Uh, and also the, the last thing I would add, I think it would be, well, there'd be lots of other things, but just to keep it relatively concise, I would also add something around storytelling that we were talking about at the beginning. And the question for me that runs through all of this is, is not how do we tell stories about a future which are utopian? Because if, if, if we start, if, if I've been doing transition long enough to know that the term utopian is used as a sort of a term of abuse to dismiss what you've said as being very nice but not really very feasible for me the thing that we need to perfect is the art of telling stories about how it turned out okay not perfect not yeah. like amazing but just how it turned out okay you know how we got out the other side and the sun still came up and we were still and, and, and it was good you know there was a good life to be had the other side and there's a guy called Mohsin Hamid who's a author who wrote a book called The Reluctant Fundamentalist and he also wrote a book called Exit West recently which is set a little bit in the future where something sort of magical happens that basically means these doors open up all around the world so people can just move 
it's it's kind of an it's kind of a metaphor for a world with no borders and uh and then it's set at the end of the book is like 20 years after this has happened and there's been mass migration of people have moved around the world and then it's all kind of calmed down and people have all kind of settled down and they've created new jobs and new livelihoods for themselves and it's not perfect but it's okay you know and, and so for me one of the things that i try and do in transition a lot of my work is really telling stories and how do we tell the stories of change that people can identify with that people can see can recognize in their lives that people can really uh that, that it, it it feels possible so for me that's the other thing is that we need to perfect whether it's through media through film through story through the through the, the the projects that we create and how we communicate about them is we need to tell the stories about how it turned out okay i think that's beautiful actually and and, and as you say you know not perfect okay yeah it's just all right which means we can get there yeah we can get there it's not like yeah you know if that's the there's a there's a guy called there's a martin shaw who i mentioned earlier on the, the mythologist guy He's beautiful. He talks about the difference. We have three kinds of memory. He says we have skin memory, which is like the kind of stuff we put on our CV, like where we went to school, that kind of stuff. Then we have our flesh memory, which is the, our loves and losses and the big kind of events of our life that are really in there. But then he says we also have what he calls bone memory. And the way that he explains bone memory is he says, if you put a, a chick in a box and you fly over it a shadow that's the shape of a pigeon, it doesn't have any effect on it. If you fly over at the shape of a hawk, it goes shit, shit. And so, you know, even though it's never seen a hawk before, in its bone memory, it has that sense. So for him, myth is the way that you access, because those stories have been told for thousands of years. And, and he says they're like rounded like pebbles in a stream. You know, they've been, they've been, uh, they've become these, uh, uh, something that really works because it speaks to our bone memory. So for me, it feels fundamental that when we try, when, when I try and give talks about transition and talk about this stuff, I try and tell these stories in such a way that they really try and touch into people's bone memories, you know, that longing for connection, for community, for solidarity, for a world in which people can just sleep on a bench in the street, uh, in, in a good way, not because they're homeless, but you know, like in, 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 in warmer cultures, people play chess in the street, people dance in the street, people celebrate in the street, people, people play dominoes, you know, actually what, let's do, tell the stories about what it is that fundamentally we like to connect into as, as human beings. And that should be, uh, that bone memory is something that should be running through the stories we tell about the future, I think. Um, I think we're going to have to leave it at that. We could go on all day. And I hope we can later. <laughs> there's, all, there's much, much too much of a, a rich seam here to just do it, you know, the once. Yeah, 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 good. Uh, in the future, maybe we can pick a couple of other elements of this and, and yeah, for sure. deep dive. Um, Thanks so much, Rob. It was lovely. My pleasure. It was a joy. And uh, we'll keep in touch. Enjoy the sun. We've got sun here as well now. Look. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, have a good one. See you soon. Ciao. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. 
To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.